a thing. Did this, did God really require this? And it seems horrific at first, yet the very first line is there to kind of, as a reader, look at it and say, this is, this was a test. In the end, this wasn't necessarily going to be the outcome, but it was a test. But Abraham wasn't told that. We're told that. We're looking at it. Abraham is looking at it and taking it face value. God's asking me to do this. Am I going to do it? God was, according to Abraham, asking him to burn his son, his only son, upon an altar. This request is actually a lot like what we hear in the New Testament. When Jesus talks about the true cost of discipleship, Jesus said in Luke 14, 26, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's a severe statement. And Jesus is saying that the passion and love for me and loyalty to me must even be to the point where you're willing to create division within your own family. If you won't honor God's Word at the cost of disassociation with your own family, then you ought not take comfort in your profession of faith. That's a hard saying. That's severe. But if God is not going to require Abraham to burn his son, then what's going on here? There's something deeper that's going on here below the surface. But before we get to that deeper level, I've got to ask this question. I get, it's important to this whole text. What is a burnt offering? It's a significant word here in this text. In fact, it's the second time it's mentioned in the book of Genesis. Well, the word means to go up in smoke, like a sat through, through some sort of burning sacrifice, to go up, to be completely consumed by fire. In the book of Leviticus, which details how these sacrifices would take place by the children of Israel, it was the very first prescription in the book of Leviticus. You open the very first chapter, and it describes the burnt offering and what it was signifying and what it was supposed to do. But the sacrifice is like an object lesson. A burnt offering pictures for us the wrath of of God upon sin. Fire is probably the closest thing in nature that corresponds to the consuming, violently dangerous holiness of God. I mean, I have a fire pit, and as I burn, I can't get close to it. Otherwise, little hairs on my arm get singed off. It's intensely dangerous. It's hot. The book of Hebrews describes our God as a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 29. So what is happening here? 
That's what a burnt sacrifice is supposed to image for us, that the wrath of God is coming down an object that is bearing sin and burning it and consuming it. What's happening here? Why is God asking this of Abraham? Well, for Abraham to be obedient to what God is asking him to do, Abraham must be first in his own heart willing to follow through with it. If there's no willingness in his heart to burn his son, then there will be no action. There will be no action to which God can actually take him out of and redeem him. But he's not, he has to be willing. In other words, he has to offer up in his own heart the image of his son and burn it first inside of his own heart in order for him to be obedient to what God has said. He has to burn the idol in his heart. That's what's happening here. And this is incredibly applicable to all of us who are here this morning. And you've got to stay with me here to follow the reasoning. You consider Abraham's calling. He was the beneficiary of God's unconditional grace to him. He has a relationship with the God who's created the stars. And he's obeying by faith. He's not perfect in his obedience, but he's been obedient through the, through the years. God is now proving out of this the faithfulness. He's, he's purging out the things that are in his heart. He's asking Abraham to be like a living sacrifice. Think carefully with me our New Testament. Paul described the overwhelming evidence of God's grace for you in the book of Romans. First 11 chapters. And then he comes to chapter 12, and this is what, what Paul says. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. What is a living sacrifice? There is a heart inside that is completely consumed there is a heart inside that has butchered the idols and surrendered to God because of his mercies. See, Abraham was being called to respond from the heart. And God, like Abraham, is calling us to burn up every idol, every sin, that we elevate above God. See, for all these years, Abraham had to trust God and follow Him, and he received the promises. But now that he had a son, does he still have to follow Him? Does he still have to love God with all of his heart, soul, and body if he's got what he really wanted? Will Abraham be more loyal to God or will he be more loyal to the gift that God has given him? You see, God is not opposed to our 
internal happiness. You know, but the problem is that God knows our hearts. He knows that when, when we have something that we particularly want and cherish, we place our confidence and hope in it. But God is committed to your joy. He, he, he wants you to have an internal happiness, but He knows that if you put your confidence in something that is like a worldly pleasure, a security outside of Him, it's going to fail you. And so to prove the loyalty of your heart, God may do something that is severe to test and to purge out the temporary happiness that you think that you need to have. God does want you to be happy, but He knows that your happiness can't be complete and full until you obey Him. This is what the cost of discipleship is. Obedient faith requires of us to submit everything else at the foot and feet of God. That's what, that's what faith requires. That's the obedience that faith requires. Now, this is not an obedience by which you merit your way to heaven, but this is the responsiveness of faith that comes but secondly, I want us to see here the object in which our faith rests. In verses 3 through 10, Abraham sets the wheels in motion. In verse 3, Abraham, it says, rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and then he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. And this is a long journey. It's a three-day journey. He goes three days on this trek, going. He's taking steps of faith. He's obeying, even though he doesn't understand the outcome or the reason why God has asked this of him. There is a tremendous dying to self that's occurring right through these lines. There is a burning that's taking place inside of his heart. And how do I know this? Well, as you read all the little details in here, you're, there's, these extra details are placed here on purpose to show us that this, there's a methodical moving from one thing to the next. It's like he's got a checklist. I've got to keep going. I've got to keep going. I've got to keep going. It's like I, I don't want to go, but I'm going. I'm going through this. Abraham, he rose early, he saddled his donkey, he took two men with him, and there's all these little steps along the way here to get to the outcome maybe that he doesn't desire. The last thing of all that Abraham does here before they actually get out of town is he's, he's leaving the wood to the end. He cuts the wood last. Maybe he's hoping that God will somehow just say, okay, it's all over. I'm not going to do that now. But God doesn't, so he keeps going. And at this point, Isaac is about 13 or 14 years old. And in verse 7, you know, he's been kind of going along with this with his father, and all of a sudden he realizes, wait a second, we've got the fire, we've got the wood, but where's the lamb for the offering? I mean, the obvious is kind of missed by him, and maybe his dad is hoping he wouldn't actually bring this up, as junior hires sometimes do. They miss the obvious. But notice what Abraham says. This is key. 
Verse 8, God will provide for himself. God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. This is such a hope-filled statement. Even though I am positive that there was a psychological burden that was going on in his heart. How did Abraham know? How did he know that his God would provide? How did he know that? If he hadn't gone through all of the smaller tests and trials leading up to this moment. All of those trials were preparing him for the greatest moment of his life. You know, life is a lot like the Olympics. Although you might not feel like running the Olympics or anything like that. But those who prepare for the Olympics, you know there are hundreds of little heats along the way. There's hundreds of little heats that, that maybe there's failures, maybe there's wins, and there's a collection over time, and there's endurance that's there so that when you stand at the final track, you have, you're there. And see, God uses all of these things in our lives. He uses all of the victories. He uses all the failures, all of the getting back up on our feet. He uses all of these because these, all these little tests are preparing us for endurance. But through all of these, what has Abraham learned? What has he learned about his God? He has learned that his God is unconditionally committed to him. There is nothing that can separate him, if you will, from God's love. He saw God walk through the covenant ceremony. In the same way, we see God committing to us by being torn asunder on the cross of Calvary. He preserved the integrity of Sarah even when Abraham failed miserably by lying about his wife, yet God was faithful still. Even in the last chapter that we looked at, Abraham had learned that his God was always good, he was always just, and he was always for him. There's a couple of points of application that are right here for us in all of this. First is how well do you know your God? Do you know your God as Abraham knew his God? You know, a well-adjusted believer is, is a lot like our daughter, Anna. When our daughter came to us, she was nervous, she was anxious, she was apprehensive, and when we first met her, and maybe, remember the video where we, she was holding, we were holding her, and she started to cry, and we handed her a sucker? She held onto that sucker with a death grip. I can't get into her head, but it seemed as like, you better not take that away from me. And that's the last thing we wanted to do. But she didn't know us. She didn't know us very well. But now that she knows us, you know what she did the other day? She handed me a dumb, dumb sucker on her own. It's because she knows us. In the same way, a person who is not well-adjusted as a believer, it's obvious because the flesh tendency comes out and, you know, we get anxious and we can't forgive other people and we sow discord because we're afraid of what might happen and 
We start sharing things that we shouldn't share, and the works of the flesh are evident. But on the other hand, if you know that your God is always good, always just, and always for you, you can relax. You can say, what come may, my God won't separate me from his love. That's a healthy attachment to God. The second point of application, which I think is often overlooked here in this text, is Isaac's remarkable willingness to allow himself to be bound up with rope. He's 13 or 14 years old. As soon as I would start putting rope around my boys, they'd know what's coming. And I'm sad to say, but I'm getting a little bit less stronger than them. Don't tell them that. But I want us to understand and see here that Isaac didn't rebel. He didn't say, no way, I'm not getting on that thing. You know why he didn't get on that thing? Why he did get on that thing, rather? Because he saw the confidence of his father. Parents, this is a significant application for us. Our children know where our confidence is and where it isn't. They see us. They can see the anxiety and the temper rise. They can see a legalistic heart a mile away. They notice the fear of men. They notice what we choose to prioritize and what we minimize. Isaac got on the altar because he saw a parent who truly believed. Third point of application I think that's important for us We need to see Abraham's humble attitude through all of this. You know, just as Abraham is about ready to slit the throat of his son, the angel of the Lord cries out, Abraham, Abraham. Notice what Abraham says. He says, here I am. That's all he says. Here I am. And in this passage, this is the third time Abraham has said those words. Once he said them to his son and said a little bit more, but whenever he interacts with God, that's all he says. He says, here I am. This is a very significant point because the burnt offering here is come full circle. This is the complete emptying of ourself. It is the response of a servant which hears the word and says, I'm ready to serve you. What what do you want me to do? Here I am. It's a living sacrifice. He's alive, but he's not requiring his rights. This is a point of application because There may be times where people are asking you to serve and you might initially not think, I can. No, that's not what I really want to do. It's not my passion. It's not my desire. The humble response that is honoring to Christ is just simply saying, here I am. What do you want me to do? I'll do it. 
See, this is faith that's resting in a person. It's resting in God. Third point here, and very briefly, but significant, here towards the end, verses 12 through 19, we see the outcome that faith receives. A substitute ram was found. And so the immediate tension is resolved. God had all of this in mind. He had a substitute. But we tend to overlook sometimes exactly the significance here. Yes, that is incredibly significant, and I don't want to minimize that in the least. But notice else what, what, what happens here. In verse 12, God says, He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. He's commended by God. He said, there's the, 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 God is looking favorably upon him and communicating such with him. And this, this commendation is fuller expressed in verses 15 to 18, which we didn't read, but... Look what happens here in verse 16. I'll read it right now. It says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will bless you. God pledges his undying loyalty to Abraham. He had it already. But isn't it nice to hear it from him? He says it. In verse 17 to 18, the promises are restated here again. He's going to multiply the seed, multiply him, and the enemy will then come and serve him. See, God was pleased, and God was letting him know. And I think this is critically important for us to hear this morning, is that God is pleased with your obedience and he plans on telling you someday. Someday when we are in heaven and the crowns and the gifts are being given, they will be given to those who have obeyed him because they love him and have been loyal to him. But I know that here that no one is perfect, but what's being communicated, I mean, you look at the life of Abraham, he was by no means perfect. There were lots of ups and downs along the way. But Abraham's basic distribution, his basic disposition to God was for God. That's where his heart wanted to be. In the New Testament, 2 Timothy 2.13 says, if we are faithless, he will remain faithful. For he cannot disown his own. Make no mistake about this. When Abraham obeys, he blesses others and receives God's promises. And the truth here is for us is that when we do sin, we do hurt other people around us. We aren't blessing people around us. But on the other hand, if we by faith in God, we will bless other people. God blesses us in Jesus Christ, and God will continue to pour blessings upon us. And He rewards 
in ways we can't even you know, imagine. Corey Ten Boom, we know she suffered a lot in the Nazi concentration camps in Europe. She was famous for her ability to forgive her tormentors. That famous incident where she was speaking on forgiveness and one of her concentration camp guards was there in the audience and came to her and asked to be forgiven. She once wisely said this. She said, I have learned to hold everything loosely. That way it doesn't hurt when God takes them from me. Does God have a right to all of our heart? Does God have all of our heart? I want to close with a prayer that's not mine. It's A.W. Tozer. In his book, The Pursuit of God, he closed with this prayer. And I want to close my sermon with it. Father, I want to know Thee, but my coward heart fears to give up its toys. I cannot part with them without inward bleeding, and I do not try to hide from Thee the terror of the parting. I come trembling, but I do come. Please root from my heart all those things I have cherished so long and which have become a very part of my living self, so that thou mayest enter and dwell without a rival. Then shalt thou make the place of thy feet glorious. Then shall my heart have no need of the sun to shine on it, for thyself will be the light of it, and there shall be no night there. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to close our service this morning by singing a song that reminds us of the great work of Christ and why it is that our hearts should be all for Him. We're going to sing in closing the first and last of Before the Throne of God Above.